Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jew3 Project, and you're about to watch a conversation from Courageous Conversations 2021. However, before we get into that, I want to cordially invite you to Courageous Conversations 2022. The theme this year is the scholar and the skeptic. We're back in Washington, D.C. at National Community Church with seven amazing conversations. Conversations like, is there a God? Should we trust the Bible? Is Christianity a white man's religion? Does Christianity oppress women? Is Christianity homophobic and transphobic? Should we be spiritual or religious? Is Christianity bad for our mental health? We want to give you a blueprint on how to have courageous conversations with gentleness and respect. Remember, we sold out last time, so make sure you register early and get your ticket now. If you can't join us in person, you have the virtual option as well. Register today at CourageousConvos.org. Now the first conversation is truth and trauma. And I'm so excited about this topic because I'm excited that we're opening up the conference with a conversation around mental health and specifically how trauma shapes how we see truth. I think this is an important conversation because as we're trying to get to what we know about a particular topic, it's important to know how trauma may have colored or shaped our view of that topic. And so today we have four amazing panelists to help us navigate that. Dr. Christina Edmondson, Dr. Charles Goodman, Dr. Nicole Massey-Martin, and Pastor Watson Jones. Today's panel will be moderated by Malik Blade. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Good morning. <laughs> uh, glad to be with you today. Uh, just a few housekeeping things before we jump in uh, to preface today. Uh, thank you all for joining us online uh, and in person. Uh, first, I'll speak for all future moderators uh, to the panelists in saying that we do have a schedule and we uh, wanna make sure that everyone is heard, but that also our viewers uh, get to hear from you at length in a nuanced way on a variety of topics rather than just one for those long-winded folks. So uh, just ahead of time, I wanna mention that we may need to cut things short to move to the next part of the conversation, but please don't take it personal. And I say that for all future moderators as well, amen. Uh, now, <laughs> as far as uh, this conversation, the topic is truth and trauma. And in light of uh, recent events in our country as it relates to the pandemic and several other things, I'm sure it's something that many of us cannot identify with, the idea of trauma. Now, previously uh, at Courageous Conversations, you can go back and look online, uh, there was a conversation about discerning truth. So there has been some conversation already had about truth. So we're gonna anchor this conversation or start with the idea of defining trauma. So I'd like for each of you to speak to this from a general perspective in terms of definition and defining trauma, but then also speak to it so the panelists can understand your framework, define trauma from a personal perspective as well. So if you could, whoever wants to jump out there, please define trauma in a general sense, but also a personal sense. 
I was going to let the ladies go first, uh, um, but we want to share. Uh, once again, thank you again to Dr. Lisa Fields. Let's give her a hand. I think she's a phenomenal gift to the kingdom at large and to Jude 3 for this great opportunity and to my fellow panelists and moderator. If we're just to really think through, and I think that this topic is so needed um, in full disclosure, just dealing with some more death this morning, even as a pastor, from a clinical definition, I, I saw trauma as simply this life-altering event that negatively impact one's mental, emotional, and physical well-being, just to make it from a macro standpoint, um, and how the frequency of the trauma can be identified, perhaps even as one time, multiple times, or long-lasting repetitive events. Um, what made this an interesting conversation, I know we'll dig deep into some of the nuances, is that trauma, not only from a macro perspective, is very subjective and objective. So you have the larger things, but each one internalizes and deals with trauma in a very different way. So starting it from a macro, and then I'll toss it to our other panelists, that's how I came to the kind of clinical definition, macro perspective of what I see trauma being. Thanks. Yeah, you know, I, I thank you for opening up uh, so, so clearly. Um, another way that I think about trauma is I think about it as, um, not, not the incident or the things. We think about a car crash. The, the trauma is what, what has now happened to the body. Uh, it's the way the body has now been misshaped or bruised or injured. And this is why the same event or the same experience could impact different people in different ways. So the trauma isn't just necessarily the thing that caused the pain, but the trauma is the pain itself. Um, and sometimes we can, we can focus on the difficult thing that we can miss the, the unique impacts that it has on different individuals. So I, I wanted to lift that part up. Another way I think about trauma is that trauma becomes a set of lenses, like some of you are wearing contact lenses or eyeglasses right now. So trauma becomes a new way for us to see what is in front of us. And that doesn't mean that it's in front, in front of us is now a lie, but it does deeply impact the way we view what's before us in a whole new way. And so for some of us who are trauma survivors or have worked with trauma survivors, they can think about themselves in that way, a before trauma and an after trauma when they started to see the world in a very different way. You can think about an early childhood trauma survivor who says, I remember when my innocence was lost, when I was once in their mind innocent, and then a difficult experience happened, a painful experience happened, and now they're seeing things in a different way. So it's, it's a lens, and I think thinking about it that way as well allows us to be attentive to when we can feel that lens that we're putting it on, maybe as trauma survivors, um, and also to be uh, gracious with others when that lens, they're putting that lens on and they may not even realize it. I think um, both Dr. Goodman and Dr. Edmondson have done a good job giving a general idea about it, but when I approach it, I think about it on an individual level and how different people react differently to it. There are some who fall into hypervigilance. Their wheels start moving real fast when they're triggered by it, uh, or something triggers it rather, they move real fast, they jump in, and I think even if we look at this traumatic event of the pandemic, there are people who dealt with it differently there were those who dealt with it from sort of a flight, a fight or flight mentality, left, stepped back, withdrew. And then there were many who turned on the wheels and worked harder, pushed harder, uh, and, and not 
saying that they were necessarily thriving in the pandemic more than that was their survival mechanism to react to this event that is definitely bearing heavy on the psyche and the soul of an individual. Dr. Martin. Yeah, I just, one additional thing to add is to think of trauma as a wound of the heart. So oftentimes when we have a wound that's external, we know it's gonna take time to heal, we know that it's gonna need treatment. If we can see trauma as a wound of the heart, then we can start to treat our wounds differently. And as it's already been said, trauma isn't the thing, it's the reaction, the effect of a moment that happens to us. And the last thing is that trauma can be experienced secondarily. You can actually experience secondary trauma uh, when you see others going through it. As pastors, when you watch or walk with uh, families that are experiencing um, really traumatic events. So thinking of it as a wound of the heart really does help us as well. Absolutely. Uh, so I want to allow you guys to kind of steer this ship to a certain extent. So I'll float this out there and let you kind of guide us. Uh, what hath one to do with the other? In terms of this panel, it's truth and trauma. So why would we choose those two, those two things to discuss parallel to each other? What hath truth to do with trauma? Yeah, so I can't wait to hear these answers from the panelists. But what immediately comes to mind, um, and, and, I, and obviously we're gonna get into discerning theological truths, which is at the heart of the two days together. But what I wanted to lift up is that one of the things that cements interpersonal trauma is, um, is that it's not considered true. So that, that truth about the trauma, affirmation of the trauma, acknowledgement of the trauma is a balm. Um, and this is why we know for really young children that the difference between um, uh, some of the long-term older adult effects that trauma can bring, uh, physical and mental health issues, is deeply positively impacted by the belief of one trusted person. One trusted person saying what you said happened to you is true. So in that sense, truth, truth and belief become curative. Uh, to people who have experienced deep trauma, which is why it's so important that we learn how to sit and listen to people um, and, and to give up of ourselves, our discomfort, uh, to hear them when they speak about their pain. I think about, too, uh, trauma as I understand it, it uh, as a wound of the soul, wound of the heart, where it goes in a person and how deep it sits, it it goes to almost like the emotional core of the person where I mean, we know that it actually impacts areas of your brain that deal with your emotion, but it goes to where your emotional seat is. And so uh, your core beliefs lie there. And when you start thinking about theological truth, sometimes not always, but sometimes trauma, because they feel it so deeply and it hurts so badly, it can alter how you understand God and how you understand God's word, how you approach God. Do you reshape God? Do you walk away from God? It makes it difficult. For example, some will say, uh, who have gone through it, will struggle to even utter the words, God is good. Because if God is good, then how would God who is good allow this evil to happen? And that's a deep theological thing in and of itself, but it can, it can really challenge the way you see truth and almost form again, not for everyone, but for some, almost form a barrier to truth. That's good. I, I was really thinking through it. I'll be honest. Um, 
I wrestle with this term truth now because I think we are still trying to claim what truth is. And when I try to juxtapose the two and even put them in concert, truth and trauma, uh, I really had a hard time trying to figure out which way to navigate it because truth now is so subjective and is so far from what we would consider established concrete norms. Truth is what you believe regardless of the facts. And so really trying to mesh that with the reality of trauma and how real it is, um, I was really trying to work through it mentally, spiritually, about how can we marry that? Because once again, if we don't know truth, and I know we stand from our Christian perspective, but as we're navigating life now in this um, space and, and culture that we're in, we're from a minority perspective. And back in the day, we just would tell people the truth, right? God got you. Or just as you said, God is good. And most people now can't even comprehend that idea because they can't reconcile the existential reality with this eternal truth that we claim and we believe and hold on to. And even as a faith leader and a practitioner, I've wrestled with it. My trauma's different, but I wrestle with, okay, <laughs> Can truth really be the salve to provide not even healing? Because we'll get to that. Because I'm not sure if everything will be healed. And so I, I'm just trying to figure out, is it okay? Can I still hold on to truth with my trauma still being present and not being reconciled? Or even being brought to a place where I'm, maybe I'm having to be Jacob with the eternal lamp. But I'm still Israel now. So, so part of that is just kind of what I've been, so I don't know if that's it. I just, in moments they feel like they're the same, they compliments. And then in other moments they feel like they're antagonistic and enemies to one another. Yeah. I, uh, I'll add this. Let's, hopefully we agree on this, uh, whether you're communicating as, as a pastor uh, in a classroom, counseling situation, uh, I would assume what you're trying to articulate to the other party or parties is what you consider truth. Uh, so if truth is a destination, could you give examples of how trauma keeps others from getting to the destination. Yeah. So first of all, the Bible is full of examples of exactly what we're talking about right now. Um, one example that comes to my mind, it's Exodus 6. Moses is trying to tell the people, we're about to be delivered. God is going to see us through to the other side. But Exodus 6, 9 says, the people could not receive it because of their disappointment, because they were overworked, because they were overwhelmed, because they were traumatized. You fast forward to Luke 24, the men on the road to Emmaus, they couldn't even understand Jesus when he was talking to them because of their trauma, because of what they had seen, because of what they experienced. But this is the crossroads of trauma. If we follow the road of trauma well, we'll have two responses and probably more. Either the trauma is going to lead you to a place of stress post-traumatic stress. You, you will always be triggered. You will always be worried. You'll start to be anxious. Anything that seems or smells or feels like that will bring you to a point of anxiety or post-traumatic growth. 
And this is where resilience comes in, where you can use that traumatic moment and it can catapult you to a reality that you never knew before. So again, you go to the men on the road to Emmaus. Their trauma leads them to say, stay with us because what you're saying is actually feeding our souls. And when the bread is broken, their eyes are open. They go to a response of post-traumatic growth. They grow from that moment of trauma in a way that they could have never grown before. And as people who have uh, a narrative of oppression and trauma, we have often grown from that trauma. And I love what you said, Charles, because the reality is sometimes the trauma is not gonna leave. But how we respond to that trauma is key. So if we can't receive the truth because of the trauma, then we've got to think about ways to lower the barriers of trauma so that we can see God. And that, I think, is where the power of God's word comes in. Dr. Emerson, how, how do you believe trauma can keep us from truth? Wow. Um, I think there are a lot of ways, even some tangible ways. Uh, sometimes the source of our trauma is connected to the people who um, are responsible for guiding us. <laughs> so um, I think for many people, um, the person who was supposed to see them, affirm them, acknowledge their hurt and pain, or guide them in a safe direction could very well be the source of the hurt. Um, and so all issues of credibility become, become shaky ground. Why, why would you trust? Um, so I think we just have to, we have to own that. And I think we have to own that when it comes to not just people, but institutions like the church, right? So uh, we have a number of, of people who are crying out about that very topic right now, right? Uh, because they have been traumatized or they have not been seen and loved well when traumatized by the church. And so I, I, there's just very practical ways that that can show up. But I also think that, um, you know, how, how trauma gets in the way of seeing truth um, is that we tend to want to make meaning um, about, ev about everything. I think about the state of the way the brain works. We're trying to fill in the gaps. And this is what we do all the time. When I look at you with your mask on, I'm, I'm, my brain is already filling in your face. If you pull down your mask, I might be surprised because you didn't look the way that my brain had created. And we do that with our trauma, trauma experiences too. We try to make meaning of what is happening. And the truth is we may never get the meaning and if our healing is tied to having the right answer, if our healing is tied to understanding what that person was thinking that hurt us, if it's dependent on that, then we have put the prospects of our healing into the hands sometimes of a perpetrator. And so we have to be able to find a healing or think hope in a healing. Maybe we won't get it, but hope in a healing. Hope in a healing that's not tied to the validation opinions or thoughts of the one that hurt us. Um, and this is, this is why I keep thinking in, in my mind and pointing to Jesus. Jesus, the one who understands and gets trauma like nobody's business, gets trauma from the religious community, gets trauma from the state, gets trauma from family and loved ones, gets the trauma of being hung naked before the world, bruised and brutalized and mocked. This is the one now currently, hands outstretched as the great high priest interceding over the church. So when I think about my own traumas, I think to myself, safe with my trauma, the one who knows trauma and who intercedes for me now. Thank you. Can, 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 I, can I jump? And, and I hate to pivot on that because it's so profound. And I, I feel so much better because I know Jesus. I'm and, here for that. And I believe in Jesus. 
Jesus is my everything. But if y'all allow me a few moments to just bleed as a pastor, what happens? Because we're raising the question of what happens if the trauma hides us from the truth. But what if the truth becomes a barrier to deal with the trauma? Last two weeks, I had a 30-year-old young man that I saw grow up, beautiful five-year-old daughter, inexplicably drowns with his friends and on a Saturday. Four days later, I get a call, a kid that we went through my Boule mentor program, 14 years old, gets killed by his own uncle who had a deranged psychotic break. And I'm sitting here and I'm having to speak truth to family people. The mom of the person that drowned, amazing individual, love her so dearly. And she was stronger than me in that moment because I had a lot of questions. Anger. And she said, I know God is good, Pastor. God is good. And part of me said, he's good, but I need you to be able to manage this trauma. I don't want this truth to become a morphine-dripped medication that will become something that numbs you in this present moment that then won't allow you to deal with this trauma because when that drip stops and that trauma overtakes that truth, you're not going to be okay. And so as I dealt with that, I had to stand as a, you know, as to preach those. I think when I preached for the 30-year-old, the text was Psalm 61, lead me to when I'm, my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. For the 14-year-old, I, I did Psalm 68, and the question was, and the text says, and God is close to the brokenhearted. And here was a revelation in that moment, and maybe it helped someone. God didn't promise to heal the broken heart. The comfort was in the closeness. And I, I sat there wrestling because sometimes we go to this truth that needs to anchor us. But if we're not careful, that truth will become something that causes us to build this barrier instead of a bridge to deal with the trauma. And so as a pastor, I'm, I'm really wrestling. I'm really struggling because I know God is good. I have, there's no doubt in my mind, but I do wrestle with these traumatic moments. And I ask the proverbial question, why and why this happens? And I do think that the church, if we're not careful, we'll give people truth and we'll say things and we'll, and it's true, it is. But we don't give people space to deal with this expansive reality that this hurts and this pain is real and my heart is broken and will probably never get fixed. There's a void that will never be filled no matter how much I lift my hands, no matter how much I go to church, sing, preach. There's this void that is not going to get better. So I, I wrestle with that tension, and that goes back to, we often talk about how trauma can hide truth, but if we're not careful, the, the, the antithesis of that will happen where the truth then will force us to hide the trauma. It's just something I thought about. I think, I think you're onto something there. Um, when I even think of our people, and specifically I think of my grandmother's generation, the generation that were migrants who moved from the South to Chicago, DC, you know, places like that, and having experienced some real serious trauma, and the knee-jerk reaction would be to run to truth, 
and which again, I think is right, but the knee jerk reaction to running the truth but not dealing with the trauma. And then you start to hear stories from the grandchildren about how the grandmother or grandfather could have been abusive. On one hand, raised praise to Jesus, but were abusive or spoke to their children recklessly, beat them too badly. And you come to the place in 2021 where you can look back, and I've, I've talked to many pastors my age who hear these similar stories where people who were being faithful, trying to be faithful, would run the truth without actually processing it. And I think some of that, I can only speak from my cultural location as a black man, I think some of that is, it's a survival mechanism. It's a, you know, we can't, we've never been given place to really sit and process, to sit and think, to sit and feel, and we run to whatever's gonna help us feel better. Some run to the truth, and, and some do find, you know, I, I don't know if full healing is, is, is even a promise from the Lord on this side, to your point. I think full healing comes from when Jesus comes back. I do think we do get things to cope with it and help us, because the trauma is always present. It can be re-triggered again. But, um, but people run to find something to kind of help them in that moment without actually processing the loss of a child. You know, you think about when this pandemic passes, how many people at this point so almost pass. Are you certain that you're going on a record to say this? About five years. Okay. <laughs> about five years. Um, I'm not a prophet, no, the That's son of a prophet. real trauma I'm dealing with about right now. About five years. Um, but you look at even now, nearly 700,000 people have died. That's families that never got closure, that never got to say goodbye to loved ones, and some of them never really got funerals. And when this thing is over and the survival time has gone past, where we're not just hustling to live, but now we gotta sit with five years of grief that's been suppressed. I mean, it's gonna be interesting to see how this pours out. Why do we glorify the survivor? And we made it so, and this is a question we can throw for the moderator. Why have we made it so that we glorify the overcomer? We say things like, without a test, you won't have a testimony. Mm -hmm. So we've made people think that unless you get trauma, mm -hmm. you can't be triumphant. So I wondered about that. Why do we do that? Why, what is it embedded in us that it's almost like people, you got to go through something because that proves that God is with you when you make yeah. it through. You know, when I, when I hear you say that, I think about how, you know, we're making meaning. <laughs> and if you don't have the power to change what somebody's going to go through, you, you start to try to make it make sense. And then you get into cliches, right? You get into slogans. Because you can't, you can't change, you can't alter tomorrow. You can't snatch them out of it, right? I was backstage, we were talking about, um, about empathy and really the high cost of empathy. And while we may, not, we may have healing, that doesn't mean we're gonna be healed with the ED <laughs> on this side. But a lot of what we're not wanting to give people is ourselves. We're not wanting to give people is patience. And so we give them an answer, but people need people, right? Uh, they need presence, and that doesn't mean people with a bunch of answers, people with just presence. If you won't cry, I'll cry. Um, I'll, I'll feel the things right now, and which is, sounds like a bit of what you just described, what you were able to do with that family. Um, as a religious leader is to say, I'm gonna demonstrate for you there's a variety of okay ways to process this moment. Right. I see that you can't do it, and I'm not gonna judge you, but I will, I will let the tears fall. And so giving ourselves up to people 
who've experienced deep hurt and trauma, especially when their trauma is tied to the fact that something has been taken from, the, from them, I think is, is a beautiful act to do. Now, we have to be healthy enough to do it. We have to be healthy enough to not be angry at their suffering. We have to be healthy enough to not want to rush them past because it triggers our stuff that we haven't dealt with. Mm -hmm. And so we give our quick cliche answers because their hurt reminds us of our hurt. And if we haven't dealt with our stuff, just being with them opens our issues up again. Um, so we're, we're constantly trying, we're constantly doing the work and really laying, this is for me, laying myself before the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll, we'll do two more questions here and I'll give you a heads up. We're going to open it up for audience questions in a few moments. So start thinking through those and when the time comes, I'll tell you how to submit those. Uh, but I want to follow up on something you said, Dr. Goodman. Uh, it seems like the question in there, so I'll ask it and now make you guys wrestle with it. Uh, it seems as if, though, the underlying question would then be, does God require trauma or suffering of a Christian? Okay, so I, too, have wrestled with this. And there's the, the conflict within me is the reality that when I look back through my own life and through the lives of people that I love and admire, the greatest moments of growth came at the point of suffering. And I hold fast to a faith of a crucified savior. So the crucifixion gives me um, a way to see another countercultural life. I mean, the reality, we're, we're here talking about reclaiming Christianity. One of the challenges that I have is we lean so much into the triumphalism of the church. We lean so much into resurrection. We lean so much into your best day is next and everything's going to be all right and every round goes higher and higher that we forget that crucifixion is at the core of who we are. And if I understand crucifixion at the core of who I am, then I won't see suffering as an anomaly, as a thing to be fought or a thing to resist or a thing to be a judgment about my faith. My suffering is not, it's not something to be out there. It's actually to be held close. And then when you step outside of America, you get into a global Christianity where people expect suffering and the moments of joy are like, oh, well, you know, praise God, we got a little sunlight. It didn't rain today. So when I, when, I, when I break beyond myself and listen to the real narrative of Christ, what I see is a crucified savior and that proximity thing is critical. So I think it's the way, I think we have to change the way we see life, not God help me to make it through without suffering, but Lord help me to see the suffering as just a part of who you are and therefore a part of who I am not to be resisted. My very last thing, we, you know, this pandemic has been incredibly hard for so many people. And last May, we lost my grandmother in Pittsburgh and we weren't able to go to the funeral. And I, I the crushing feeling that I felt was from not being able to be present. I realized that I was forced to give words in a place where I didn't want to give words. You know, when you're, when you're in a home going, just eye contact is enough, just pat on the back is enough, a hug is enough. But when you have to be on Zoom 
to say goodbye to someone that you love. When you have people in your family saying, I can't go to be with that person because of whatever reasons, or you know, the, the, the OCD in us, the germaphobes in us kind of gone to 10 as we think about how are we ever gonna get back in this? When I think about that, I realize that this suffering is, is a part of who we are and perhaps this is the type of suffering that prepares us for this ultimate coming of Christ. So, I mean, I think my wrestling is more like, is it the way I'm seeing suffering? Because I think that's my problem. I think I'm, I'm seeing suffering as something that shouldn't happen, and then that's what sets me up for disappointment. So, yes, no, or maybe. <laughs> Can you say my answer's too long? <laughs> no, uh, no, 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 I just want to round it out. <laughs> for, for Does God require trauma or suffering of the Christian? I think the question is wrong. It's hard for me to answer. <laughs> I, don't think right. it's, I don't think it's, does God require suffering? I think the question is, um, I think the question is, what does, what does God want to draw out of us to become more like him? The aim of this life is for us to become more like him. And if the answer, if, if that's the question, what does God require in order for us to be more like him, then yes. God does require suffering. Boom. <laughs> no, we're good. Amen. <laughs> Dr. Emerson, your thoughts on that? Well, Dr. Nicole, you said the things. Um, <laughs> so, and I, I'm not trying to, I really am not trying to like dance around your question. I really am not. I know you like, just give me an answer. But my answer is this, God's ways are higher than my ways. Mm -hmm. I, you know, theodicy is, is what makes and breaks people. You're talking about questions of deep suffering. Yeah. And um, this is what I know. I know God knows. I know it's a lot of stuff I don't know. I know I hate to suffer. And I know I have suffered. And I am clinging to a promise because there's some things that I believe. I believe in the Psalms that he's gonna bottle every tear. And that everything that was wicked and wrong that has been done is gonna be a lie one day. And that God has the power, not me or my imagination, but this God that I'm thinking about has the power to take the conditions of nothing and take the conditions of pain and suffering and turn it not just around, but into something new. So I'm appealing to the character of a God who has the sovereignty to do whatever God wants, but I'm appealing to the character which I'm banking on is good. That's right. Hmm. What do the pastors have to say about trauma and suffering? <laughs> so I think that people, there are segments in the church that glorify suffering beyond where it needs to be. And, you know, and I think for some in, in our culture, they need to hear more of that uh, because, you know, there they, are those, well, let me move on. So I think there are people who glorify it too much. Mm -hmm. I don't think, to, to Dr. Nicole's question, in that sense, it, it, there is a requirement in terms of it, it being used to make us like Jesus, but I don't think it needs to be where we look for it under every rock. Uh, Jesus said that in this world there will be trouble, mm -hmm. but don't trip because I've already overcome it. So yeah. life has a way of presenting trauma, stress, strain, suffering. It's going to come. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what your bank account is, education, it's going to come. And it's going to look different for different people. 
For some, it'll, it'll hit your child. For some, it'll hit you deeply. It's going to look different for different people, but I think for me, the comfort in that, knowing that it is a part of this condition in which we live, this is not heaven. And so since it's not heaven, it's, it's, a, it's, it's almost like we, we don't want to run to it, but to expect it. But the hope I find is, is that Jesus, whom I love dearly, understands it, relates to it, identifies with us who have gone through it. Um, Isaiah said that he would go through it, and he went through it, and he came out on the resurrection. And, and so the resurrection gives me a present hope in one sense. You know, like, yes, there are some things the Lord can heal me from, or not with the ED at the end, but give me a bit of help where it doesn't hurt as bad as it did maybe five years ago. But also knowing Jesus is coming back and that there is a fight that's coming where this consequence of death is going to be whooped and Jesus is going to get the final word and enact vengeance upon this enemy that brings this kind of pain. That gives me hope. That's why Paul says we grieve, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We grieve because this world, people are messed up. I don't care how smart they are. People have the propensity for deep wickedness. Doesn't matter how well, how processed, polished, or unpolished they are, deep wickedness. Beauty has on the same side of it a curse. You could see a wonderful shore. I bet the people in Louisiana have looked at that shore and said how beautiful it is. To see it come in, though, and take over stuff, this is a, this is a damnable place in which we stay in. But we also know that there is a resurrection and there is Jesus' return. That gives me hope. Right. So I don't say, I don't want to tell you, I think in the sense of what God is going to use it for, yes. But I don't think it needs to be raised up beyond the place of the fact that it's to be expected. And, and I think you're right in this when you step outside of America and you interact with Christians who are not used to the trappings of American culture, who are not used to, I mean, we're real cushioned here. And, and so much so that we get mad at money we make and the money we make might be more than our brothers and sisters in other places. Uh, we're real cushioned here and so when we get hit, and I'm not minimizing anyone's pain, pain is pain, hear me, don't hear me say I'm minimizing that. When we go and see other Christians or we even look back in our own history, our lineage, and we see grandparents, great grandparents who have very little but in some kind of way still had some modicum of joy um, they, they push through that thing. So trouble's gonna come, but we don't have to glorify it. The Lord has a purpose for it. And, and we also have a comfort in terms of presence from Jesus. So before you close this section out, Dr. Goodman, I wanna turn everyone's attention uh, to the screen. So in order to submit questions, uh, they will put a link and a QR code on the screen soon. I can't see behind me, but you let me know. Uh, and if you open your camera on your phone and put it on the QR code, it'll take you to the place where you can submit your questions. And then I'll get it here and ask it to the panel. Uh, not everyone is promised to get their question asked, but uh, scan the QR code and submit it there. But Dr. Goodman, you can close us out. Uh, does God require suffering or trauma of the Christian? I wouldn't say require, but I will say I think it's a byproduct of this fallen world. And as believers, we need to embrace that. I also think we need to reimagine it, especially in the context of John 11, 
where we see the interesting story of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And even as a preacher or pastor, we see this juxtaposition between truth. When Martha asked the question, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But then we also rush to the tomb to get Lazarus out the grave. But I want to warn people, there's something in between. Between the truth and the tomb, there was tears. And he goes to Mary, who has this deep question. And we always rush because we know the end of the story. Mary didn't know it at that time. But what Jesus did, he didn't give her a sermon. The Bible says in very succinct terms, Jesus wept. And I would hope that between truth and tomb, it's okay to wrestle with the tears. And in that moment of pain, she was hurt. She didn't know her brother was going to get out. Jesus didn't say, watch what I'm about to do. He just cried with her. And I would hope that this is one of the things that, especially as we're navigating this space, let's just learn to lament and weep. The reality of life is hard, and these things are difficult. So I, I wouldn't say God requires suffering. It's just a byproduct of this world, mm -hmm. fallen nature of humanity. And so we just spend a little more time with the Marys and just weep. What's up everyone, Lisa Fields here, and I'm so excited about our new curriculum, Courageous Conversations. You heard about our popular conference, Courageous Conversations, where we invite the leading pastors, thought leaders, and scholars from conservative and progressive backgrounds for conversations. But we not only want to have those conversations on stage at the conference, but we want you to have them in your everyday life. So we developed a curriculum for you to do just that. Courageous Conversations curriculum, the tools you need for the conversations and culture. You can get that today on Amazon or on our website at Jew3project.org. So, anybody a fan of gospel music here? Uh, anybody familiar with Donald Lawrence? Okay, so here's a question. There is a huge mur mural in the foyer of this venue that says the best is yet to come. Will you nuance that phrase with truth and trauma? <laughs> I literally heard the song in my head. <laughs> I heard it too, that bass line, yeah. <laughs> so there's a part of me that wants to quickly jump to correct it. I think we gotta address why it's there. Okay. It, it is, it's because you know our people, our culture has an impulse for hope. I'm not the one who says that. That's, that's, that's a reality. There is a sense where we've been oppressed and we understand the pain of the underbelly. And so there is this hope for, you know, this, this push towards optimism that God's on our side, God's gonna make it better. So I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, though I disagree with Donald Lawrence on a number of fronts, I wouldn't necessarily jump fast to attack because I, I, I think I understand the heart of what it's what they're trying to communicate. And I, I think, so I get that. But on the flip side, I think it goes back to something you said earlier. It points to this sort of quick, being quick to ignore pain, to, to run away from tears, because we think that pain and tears teach us nothing. And so we, so that's some, but then there are some who truthfully are tired of the pain and the tears and wanna see more. Uh, and, and so th there's just a part of me that wants to be sympathetic to why, why some gospel artists would take that approach. It, I mean, it's deeply embedded in our culture, our desire for hope in a, in a world 
in a society where a lot of people have been able to enjoy the fruits of prosperity and we by and large still here in 2021 do not enjoy it. So I, I get it, but I think, I think the, 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 the best way is to help people see Jesus as Jesus really is, to, to help them know that Jesus is there with us in this and he has not left us nor abandoned us. He's understood this. He understands this. He can help us. And there are some people who do actually do get better, but a lot don't. And they yeah. die thinking they're going to get it. Mm. And, and so, so there is that other part that makes me want to say, you know, and I know I said his name, you know, and I'll just try not to do that. I, 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 as a pastor, as a pastor, I preach against the idea, you know, and, and to try to raise up, because you know, I just don't think it's a biblical one. So you don't want to go back to Eden? Man, that, on top that, of the world. that heretical song, <laughs> go back to Eden and live on top. Oh my gosh. You know, I, I don't think Let we can ignore. <laughs> I was I totally it. thinking that song too. Okay, let me come back. Um, <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said his name. I set it up wrong. So but I figured. We, we can't. We, <laughs> totally start. We, we can't Dr. ignore. Martin. There there is an important body of research, some of it even secular, that talks about what happens in the brain when someone begins to hope. I mean, hope literally physiologically changes the way that your brain you know, functions. Jesus gives hope on the cross. He says to the thief, today you're gonna be with me in paradise. He didn't say you're not gonna die. He's just saying there's something beyond, you know? Nobody can go back to my ancestors in the field and tell them that stop singing swing low, sweet chariot, because you know, hope and it gonna come during your time. There's something powerful that happens when people hope even when the hope isn't realized in earth. So I think culturally we can take this as just eschatological. The best is yet to come, dot, 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 when Jesus comes back. Yes, that is absolutely true. And something happens when you hope. And I, I feel that tension. I feel the tension you're bringing up. I don't think hope should keep us from the reality of pain. But when, when I, I can't re even remember the name of the book, um, but it's a, a hope study and it was studying doctors and, and hospitals and essentially when a doctor tells a patient who's dying, we're gonna make it through this, there's a different resolve that happens in a dying body. So if that is the case, what's wrong with hope? I mean, how do we use hope in a way that doesn't shield us from feeling the pain, but really pushes us to something greater? Yeah, can I add to that too? I think you're 100% right, because I don't want to sound like I'm the pessimist up here, and I'm not, and I preach hope, and, and again, I do think that there is some modicum of better we do see in some ways and sometimes, and, and there are many who do get to see it. I just think you have to, you, if, if you're going to be full-throated in your preaching, to preach the scriptures, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you'll get the hope. You'll see the hope, it'll give you hope, but it'll also give you, uh, you know, you think of someone, I have an autistic daughter, here's a good example for me, an autistic daughter, you know, and the over-triumphalism of some would say, well, there's gonna come a time we ain't gonna be there. Man, my daughter's gonna be autistic until she goes to see Jesus. And, and, and I have come to enjoy her as she is and, and not to say to the Lord, I wish she were different. I wouldn't know her if she was different. And, and so 
but I'm okay with this. And I still look to the eschatological thing, but the Lord gives me the better in some sense now to cope with these kinds of things. I just think we got to help people understand what do you do when you're Paul and you pray thrice times and the thorn's not removed. You, we have to help people understand that in God's no or sometime in God's silence that there is a grace that is sufficient. And I'm not saying that those who sing those songs don't preach that. Some probably do. I just think well, they don't preach it enough. Okay. Uh, can you address the idea of American resilience and viewing traumatized people as weak? Well, um, <laughs> I mean, some, some of that's just manipulation and gaslighting, right? So, um, and, and, I mean, there's a whole... Well, we'll talk about it. Yeah, well, sure. Uh, there's a whole, I mean, there's a whole body, there's a whole movement around getting people to develop resiliency, right? And particularly in the academic and higher ed spaces. And, um, and there is something to be said about how we are able to um, not be stagnated, but be transformed, right? When you think about this post-traumatic growth, it's definitely something to be said about that. But I also think we gotta look at the systems, the structures, the wickedness that, that wears on people. Um, and to not acknowledge that and then to say like, well, you just need to be scrappier. That is the gaslighting, that is the manipulation. And so I think, uh, so when I think about people in my life who have been able to look at me and to say, I think you can do better, they are people who before they said that, uh, loved me. So my grandmother immediately comes to mind. So my grandmother could call me into, I think you can do better, because she had already poured out so much love on me. Uh, she had already given me so much kindness and grace and encouragement. So when she would get me together, you know, you, you can't correct unless you have credibility. And so this statement of like, muster it up and be more resilient, when you're the person that may be benefiting from the unjust structure that's wearing me down, that's right. you just don't get to say that. Well, you can say it, but I don't have to listen. Right. Um, so I, I think we just have to be careful about how resiliency can be used um, as a cover to be manipulative. And I think that, uh, you know, and I'm not in your field, but the little bit I read said that trauma can reshape sometimes how your brain actually works. Mm -hmm. yeah. So to, to come up with this outside philosophy that is imposed upon people, when your brain is actually now trained to make you react a certain way, to see life a certain way, to behave a certain way, it just is arrogant to me. To, to tell people that, you know, you ought to just, you ought to be better. And, and, and I think, I feel like the, the, the innate reaction I get is, is because I tend to hear that kind of talk when it, when it is people of the dominant culture speaking about black people. Y'all need to have an American resilience and just get over it. But you have multiple generations of people. I was telling somebody, for example, Chicago has a lot of highway shootings. They asked me last night why you think that is. And I said, it's historical or spiritual. I said, but this is, you know, Tupac pointed to this. This is, you know, the hell you gave. It's, it's, it's now coming out into the streets. It can't be hidden anymore. That's trauma. And to say to people who have been forced to live in a reality of, of scrapping to survive, that now have this sort of American resilience. Well, the people who pushed that didn't have that. Uh, and, and, and in fact, they reacted against those who were oppressing. We ain't had that kind of privilege. So I feel like it's arrogant 
and that maybe maybe I'm reading the question wrong, but I just feel like it's arrogant and it's insensitive to and it's not understanding. It's not even considering your own pain that you go through because you still live in a certain way because of the pain you experience. It's just it's, it's, it lacks complete grace. And I don't even think it's Christian. Mm. I would say for me, it's really challenged me from an empathetic standpoint, which I'm hoping that the church can reclaim. Can we do a mission to reclaim empathy within the church? Right. It would be a, be a great day if we could get that. Um, but I'm a go-getter naturally. I push, I go. But I, I understand as it's being reframed as a pastor and leader is that I also got to learn how to celebrate the different forms and ways that resilience takes place in people's lives. Because there's some who may take two steps back, and that's resilience, because it could have been 10 steps. Hmm. And so reframing it and making sure people know, as long as you give your best, and it's okay not to be okay. Resilience, to me, has now taken on the form of, I just don't want you to ever quit on this on who you are and how God has made you and how God is with you in this moment. And so, and so I don't ever want it to be a cheap, cheap idea because once again, I think it becomes this elusive thing that we all feel like we're on the same race and we're not, you know. Um, but I really want to applaud people that even on their, the days they're not feeling it, you didn't give up. That's resilience. That's, you took some steps back, but it could have been a whole lot worse. And it's okay some days if you just don't have it. Just don't throw in a towel and realize Amen. there is something that can still be accomplished. That God is still being glorified even in your not so productive day. And progress at the end of the day becomes what you make it in this moment that you have. And so, I, I you know, I'm, I was one growing up, I didn't believe in giving everybody participation trophies and all those different things. But in this thing that we're living in, this life that we're in now, man, just getting up. Mm -hmm. And still holding on to whatever you can grasp and hold on to and some days it's not that much if we all be honest if we all are really frank about it but you're holding on to something and so I think that to me is always you know kind of the piece that that even in this day that we need to really hey let's stay in it whichever way that looks like for you today just stay in it uh so I'll I'll be transparent uh I'm choosing this question from my own personal edification uh <laughs> Because <laughs> it references, it's similar to the question that was just asked, but it ties it specifically to scripture. So we're going to wrestle with the text for a moment. Uh, how do we use Romans 8.28 incorrectly when ministering to others with trauma? How might we become better at handling that verse when we are ministering to others dealing with trauma? And for those that don't know, Romans 8.28 says, uh, for God causes all things to work together for the good of those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And the question is getting at how do we incorrectly use that with traumatized people? So you started with the assumption that we misuse scripture. That was we're That's saying. the way the question is phrased. Okay. I'll let y'all <laughs> take it from there. Yes. <laughs> we misuse scripture. Romans 8 and 28, Lord have mercy. I just, we have made it a blanket scripture for whenever someone is going through things. And I've heard it preached, taught in a multitude of ways. Some helpful, some not so helpful. And a lot of that comes is because we are afraid, even as practitioners, 
to admit to even the people we lead that we don't know. And the expansiveness of, of God is greater than my intellectual insight and my homiletical perspectives. And when we get honest and truth, because I've heard it in a lot of different ways, these all things, whatever they may be, we know they're going to work together. But that's not always helpful to someone in the moment. So what I would say is that I think we need to wrestle with the fact that there are some things we just don't get. And I know as a pastor, leader, that's almost forbidden language to tell someone I really don't know. I don't know how this is going to work for your good. I don't know. I don't Because then good becomes a subjective thing. And I am, I am struggling with that text as well because it said for all things work together. For those who love God, as if it suggests that this all things is tied to those who just love God and you get this all things thing. I'm not necessarily sure if some of the things we put it on is what Paul intended, but that's a whole nother session that I know Jude 3 can put on and discuss. Um, but I will say is that we must be careful, and I throw it to these other theologues, we got to be careful throwing out scripture without wrestling with, I think people, we have to give people more credit to let them know, hey, this is what I'm, this is what I've interpreted, this is what I feel, but I'll be honest, let's wrestle with this and sit in the tension of this, because I don't want to do the all things. If this is what it takes to be the best disciple of Jesus, I'm glad God didn't tell me this before I picked up this mantle. You know, I would hope that it would not be some of the things that we make this text forced onto. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. You know, in addition to that, I would say um, to be able to make the distinctions, right, between um, what is happening and what, and what God is saying is good. <laughs> it's morally good, right? And um, I'm grateful for the invitation. What I see also modeled in scripture is to just tell the whole, tr the ugly truth. Why God? Why? How long, God? Um, why does it look like the wicked are progressing? As a matter of fact, they're not, it doesn't look like it. They, they are. <laughs> Living. And the scripture models these moments of just raw, authentic transparency of like, I hate this. And you could fix it. Why won't you? Um, and so I think if, if we're going to look at that text, I hope we don't skip uh, the prophets and the prophetess. I hope we don't skip the words of lament that cry out in reverence right. questions to God because we know God has power. Of course we have questions of like, why'd you let this happen? And how long is it gonna suck? <laughs> um, and, and I think knowing that God is, not, um, God is not me, filled with insecurities, that God doesn't fall apart and break apart like porcelain when I say, how long, oh Lord? God invites me and actually gave me a text, an entire songbook as a matter of fact, to be able to say back, yell back, cry back, sing back. Because again, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. So I knew someone who uh, grew up with us and um, her brother one day killed himself. 
shot himself and um, they had taken his body out the house and she's there and a well-intended believer with sincerity of heart said, you know, that was the kind of the, the go-to verse, you know, to say, and, and it wasn't, I don't think that person at all meant it to be harsh, to ignore it. I just think that that passage, I think people misquote it all the time, but I don't think that that verse should be the starting point when someone is really going through. Um, Lisa has a shirt called Listen, Lament, and Legislate. There is a part of it where you can't adequately speak to the pain of a person until you've actually heard it and thoroughly understood it. And sometimes in listening, you might actually hear the real question that they're asking. You may not hear that question in the first moment. So taking the moment to listen and to hear the depths of the pain, how that pain is connected to a real life experience. And, and I tend to, not, I mean, if you're gonna quote that, I think it's later. And it's also in the context of Paul talking about something different, um, you know, creation groaning for Jesus's return, suffering not be compared to the glory that is to be revealed, not just this verse, but I think for me, it is it, it, the starting place for me would be the passages where the questions are, the the part where writers are coming with with some understanding, with a hand on truth and a hand on the trauma, um, and and they're calling out to God in all honesty and sincerity with raw emotion about the pain that they experience to help people and help myself at times, and I felt it, to help us to process those things with the Lord and not away from him. And in terms of the context of the text, that particular verse, um, using it out of context, is a tiny pet peeve for me because you really cannot read Romans 8 without reading Romans 7. And Paul is talking about the depth of his brokenness. I mean, woe is me, the good that I would do. I don't do those things, the wrong things I know I'm not supposed to do. Those are the things that I'm going to do. Who's going to save me? And then you can get to Romans 8. There's therefore now no condemnation. So Paul is talking in that verse about what it means to be justified and glorified, what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. And that's why he's able to say, all my brokenness, God's going to make that work for not my good, by the way. And speaking of songs, there's a whole song about it working together for my good. No, that's not what the verse says. Verse says, for the good for his good, for the good of the kingdom, not my good, which means I'm going to go through this and it's not going to look good all the time. But that's the context. This is why we have to, if there's anything we can do with truth and trauma, personally, we can engage people in the fullness of God's word. If people can begin to read the fullness of God's word, they'll see the richness of lament. They'll see the God present in suffering. They'll see the woman whose son dies. They'll see a Christ crucified. They'll see, you know, they'll see the streets paved with gold, but they won't see that until they see the suffering. So the whole context of God's word is so rich. And when I hear Romans 8, I, I have to also think Romans 7. And that allows me to see this is for God dealing with my brokenness redeeming, restoring, making me whole for his good. That's right. Amen. Thank you. Uh, we'll do two more. Uh, <laughs> how do you counsel someone that is in an environment where trauma continues to happen, i.e. black students at a PWI? Primary white institution? Yes. <laughs> Say it on the mic. 
<laughs> say, I'll say the mic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have told people specifically, people I knew who were a part of PWI churches, who whose pastors would not listen to them, wouldn't, you know, were, who were almost rebuking them for their pain, whose small groups weren't sympathetic to lead. Now I get in some ways, some places that's not always easy. You know, some people, their jobs are dependent upon it right. and, and all of that. I would tell them first, and, and notice I gave all of those steps because what I, what, what I would have assumed, and, and even in cases where I've challenged people, have you had the conversations with those in power about this? And have you come to them to say, this is how this is rubbing me. This is how I come away feeling with this. This is how this hurts me. Um, you know, George Floyd and others, I mean, you just line the list of all the names of black men and women killed and churches and pastors didn't speak about it. Did you talk to your pastor about that? I've had people come back and say, yeah, I did. And I talked to, to the elders or to the leader and, you know, and, and they told me I was being divisive and all of these things. Then I, I, I sleep well at night saying leave because you cannot say, how can two walk together lest they agree? You're not standing with me. We ain't even asking you to the picket line yet. We're just saying in my pain, you're, you're minimizing my pain. I'm re-traumatized every time I look at Facebook and see this again. And, and you have zero sympathy. I can no longer be a part of your church. I can no longer be a part of your institution. And, and I'm gonna go somewhere where people can, can love me and, and, and help me with that. And so I think there's a part of that, but in cases where they can't leave, it's really being, you know, are you called there? There are some people who God called for that. And it's like, I have raised you up for such a place and time as this. Has God called you there? And if he's called you there, then you've gotta be able to have the very difficult, tough conversations uh, that can allow some of that culture to change. And it's not always malicious. Sometimes it is. It's not always malicious. Sometimes it's just not knowing. And some people want to be made aware. They don't know they hurting you. They want to be made aware. That's why the conversations have to happen. But if all of those things haven't happened, I, just to I, add, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but because we're ending, just to add to that, I'm curious. I get the idea of some people feeling called to it, but having seen it time and time again, uh, there's a season of feeling called to it until the trauma metastasizes more and then said black person is depleted completely. There's a, there's a, and you raise a question, whoever raises, and thank you for the question. Uh, I've been really trying to wrestle with what is safe space now? Mm -hmm. Because there's not a lot of safe spaces out there. And it's a text that I really think that kind of brought this to some moment for me. First Kings 19, Elijah the prophet comes off Mount Carmel. It's an incredible, successful moment. And if I had time, I would say that sometimes success can be trauma. And he leaves this moment and <laughs> he wants to die. Hmm. And out of this moment, he finds a juniper tree. And while he's there, he's lamenting to God. Next thing you know, he falls asleep. While he's asleep, an angel comes by, put water and bread by his head, wakes up, still lamenting. Angel tells, you know, eat the water and bread, and then he goes back to sleep. 
From that moment, he moves to the cave. You all know the story, the theophonic moment that he has. But I've always been just intrigued by with this juniper tree. Because this is what God has sent to provide. Now, if you think about it, the juniper tree didn't just arrive. There was a process of growth. There was a seed planted, juniper tree, mature, grow. And at this one moment, their destinies intertwine. Elijah's tired and the juniper tree has shade. It's almost as if God knew that pretty soon Elijah would need something. And it wasn't just in that present moment, but he had been building something that would give the relief to Elijah when he needed it. And sometimes in our safe space, in these spaces that we're trying to find safety, my prayer has not always been God to get me out of stuff, but allow me to find that tree, that juniper tree, that place of comfort that I can just get rest, <laughs> drink some water and some biscuits, get some more rest, lament, cry, because it was in that moment that then once he was able to get it, what he needed from the juniper tree, he could then see at the cave God like he'd never seen him before. So what I will say is I think that oftentimes, and I agree, there's some spaces you just need to be, you need to get away from. But I'm grateful as I look back at my own personal life because there were some spaces that I realized were not that safe, but God provided for Juniper Tree. Whether it was mentors, random conversation that gave me clarity and comfort. So, so I think, you know, it's, it's always interesting in those spaces. And that's a real deep one now. And, and I think it's... It's powerful, um, but I'm, I'm grateful enough, and I believe in the sovereignty of God enough that if he calls me someplace, even on my worst day, he'll give me exactly what I need. And that in itself, and to you it may seem like a little shrub, but to me it's a juniper tree. And I think, you know, that's, that shows how God works in, in these moments. So that's awesome. So the question specifically about students. Black students at predominantly white institutions. Yeah. Um, you know, we're always going to struggle in spaces that were not made for us. And not only not made for us, but maybe even has some pretty overt intentionality about not even being able to dream or envision us ever being in that, sp that space. You know, it's like... Um, uh, you know, there's an example of people building roads. You know, you know the Netherlands, you know, there, there are a lot of bikers, people that ride their bikes on the road. So their, their roads are built in a way that assumes somebody with a bike is going to get on that road. And that's not the case in the United States, okay? So when people with bikes come on the road, we're like, what are you doing here? Even if they have that little small bike track that says bike on it, we're still like, you're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to be here. And... Um, and that's, the, that's part of the feeling, plus more hostility potentially, right? Um, that I believe many students of color, black students specifically, feel at PWI institutions, especially ones that were founded um, as, as kind of anti-integration movements. Um, so I think we, ha we have to know the facts, right? Um, I do think the, the power of what you just laid out, Pastor, this idea that God can, can have something for us wherever we happen to be. Now, for some people, you definitely do need to hear the word, get out. <laughs> no doubt about that. And maybe even self-examine, why was that attractive to begin with? But in addition to that, there could be something for you there. And 
and I know people who have worked in higher ed for many years who have who have been um, who have been the black higher ed person. Their office had multiple sofas in it. They got boxes of food, and uh, that person is on assignment. So if you are a black student at a PWI and there is a black faculty or administrator there, let me tell you something. Give honor where honor is due. Because they're not there for their check. They are actually there for you. And no one else might be there for them. Okay, you got a plan to get out. <laughs> That's their job, okay? And they have been put there on assignment to maybe be that tree for you. And so I would, I would encourage you to encourage them and get into proximity to receive whatever they have to pour out into you while you're on your short journey. I know it feels like a long journey, but while you're on your short journey, there oftentimes are people that are set up there to serve you. And again, if it ain't, if it ain't for you, we're not promised time. Make a move. Yeah. Can I add a little clarity? Yeah. My response was more thinking about churches uh, and, and, and specifically thinking about the, the movement of five or six years ago where, where many had joined churches thinking that this would be a bomb to their black church experience and went to mostly white churches thinking that it would be better. And so they came into this thing disillusioned. I think you're very right at the case of institutions. When I was a, worked at Trinity in Chicago, I was that guy that people came to and, and I was the island of peace uh, for a lot of people. I, I joined a fraternity primarily to help me to cope with being in an all white space. Um, to, to give me what I needed to kind of thrive and survive. So God will give you those things. And if you're in a school like that, you absolutely need to seek those. I, and, I, and I'm one to say, if you're in a city, um, I've said I pastor a black church, I think you should find a church that can, that can be a safe-ish space for you to, to be able to still feel like your personhood is respected. Uh, so one more, uh, and counseling and things of those resources. So we definitely want to encourage you uh, to follow up uh, afterward. I can connect with you as well as far as uh, mental health resources for your church. Uh, last question, I think it's great to leave here. Uh, each of you, could you give it about a minute, a minute 30, and then we'll close out. Uh, if you've caused trauma to others, just became aware of it, what's your responsibility when you can't completely heal others? Repent. Go to the person and try your best to make it right. And with a humble heart. And at the end of the day, you know, you're going to have to, we're, one of the things that I think our Christendom challenges us is to live a life of restoration. Even if that restoration does not completely absolve, it can't absolve you at least to acknowledge it. And that's my whole issue with our whole idea of reconciliation is that we want reconciliation without recognition and repentance. That's right. mm -hmm. And that's, that's on a broader level anyway. So I, I think it, it comes to recognizing it once you get the recognition that you need repentance and then move to reconciliation. And to be clear, you included repenting to the person, not just to God in private. Yes, I think, I think you do. I do think if you are cognitive of it, but there's some situations you may not. There may have been the past or some things that have happened. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you need to have got that with God, but if you can, possibly, I, I do highly suggest you do take it to that individual. The Bible is very clear. I think it's Matthew 18. Go to that person. Mm -hmm. Try to reconcile it. And if not, 
bring some elders with you. That it was that important that there be reconciliation. Sure. And even if you can't accept it at this moment, that's fine. I just want you to know that my heart is open. Thank you. Uh, that's a hard question because it does require that you assess the trauma that is being brought to the surface. So mm -hmm. I can remember times where people said things to me like, you know, I don't believe women should preach and you got up there and preached and I'm bothered by you. Um, so I probably wouldn't apologize in that moment <laughs> because sometimes who I am and what I do causes, you know, triggers things for people and we can't control how people are triggered. If we remember the definition of trauma, trauma is not the moment. Trauma is the effect of the moment. So I wanna, I wanna say, I think the first step as we consider the next steps toward repentance is to assess the moment that caused this traumatic effect. What was my role in it? Was it something I could have controlled? Is there some way that I can reconcile this moment in a way that honors God and honors who I am? And if that, if I assess this is a personal offense, I said something that offended someone, the Bible is very clear that we are to drop our offerings, we're to go directly to that person and we're to apologize, to, not just to say, I'm sorry, I offended you, but I am sincerely sorry for any wound I've caused to your heart. At the same time, if there is some, I mean, we're in a broken world. People have a lot of challenges that they deal with. If there's a recognition that I didn't actually cause that trauma, I think a conversation is always worthwhile. And, and I would love for us to see civil dialogue happen within the church. I would love for us to see Christians initiating civil dialogue. Can you tell me what really happened here? Can you tell me what really triggered your pain? And let's, let's dialogue, come let us reason together. And if in that reasoning I've done something wrong, I need and must, I, I want to own that. But if in that moment we figure out there's something else going on, let me help you to get, you know, to the place of healing where you need to be. Pastor Jones, and we'll close out with Dr. Edmondson. Yes, I think there is a, it has to be a full acknowledgement. Listening to the person, if they come to tell us I've traumatized you, or if, if I come to realize it on my own, it's a full acknowledgement, listening to what they say and, and acknowledging my role in it. And to say, and to it, to say, I have done X, Y, Z, naming it, and uh, and not just the, a blanket, I'm sorry, but mm -hmm. naming what it is that I have done or you have done, and then to repent, to say I, I apologize, at, request that forgiveness, and then really do try to bear with the fruits of repentance, try to live differently from that, you take that experience as a learning experience, but it cannot happen without a full acknowledgement and naming what was done. the sin that, that was committed. Got it. Yeah, and, you know, and I would say, I would be thinking about what is the nature of the trauma and what are the dynamics of power that are at play, right? Yes. So even in the, the Matthew text, I'm thinking about maybe some pure dynamics there, but certainly if you have been hurt or wounded by someone who was in a position of authority and they are coming to you, that, that, that changes the dynamic significantly, where it could be a re-traumatization, it could even feel like a demand for forgiveness. And so we just wanna be mindful of those, those dynamics. I would also say I think it's helpful just to learn some basic restorative justice techniques. The harms that we experience don't just harm us individually, but we are a communal people. And so the question becomes, what is the harm and who has it impacted, and how do we repair this harm? Um, and so 
we actually need skills. <laughs> we, we need skills to love people well. Uh, we need skills to love ourselves well. And, uh, and I would commend that to people who are listening to think about getting some restorative justice skills because we be out here sinning. Um, and so we need to make sure, we need to make sure that we do more than say, I'm sorry. Um, but we actually then need to know how to wisely go about acknowledging the harm and repairing the harm on the terms of the one that has been hurt, not the terms of our imagination. Got it. Uh, could you join me in thanking our panelists? What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jew 3 Project. And I'm so excited to come to you to talk about Courageous Conversations 2022. That's right, we're at it again for another year. The theme this year is the scholar and the skeptic. We're back in Washington, D.C. at National Community Church with seven amazing conversations. Conversations like, is there a God? Should we trust the Bible? Is Christianity a white man's religion? Does Christianity oppress women? Is Christianity homophobic and transphobic? Should we be spiritual or religious? Is Christianity bad for our mental health? We want to give you a blueprint on how to have courageous conversations with gentleness and respect. Remember, we sold out last time, so make sure you register early and get your ticket now. If you can't join us in person, you have the virtual option as well, but don't miss this year. Register today at CourageousCombos.org. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well so thank you so much for tuning in also remember we have our bible engagement app in partnership with back to the bible to help you get better engaged in the bible every single day you take a survey it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you bible verses based on those so it's a great app you can download the app by searching in your app store or google play searching g3 project and it'll be right there for you so thank you again remember if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver you can do so on our website or by mail just go to g3project.com hit that donate tab and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online we appreciate you and i'm so so thankful for you God bless. And remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.